twelve of the story of King Arthur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Maguire. The story of King Arthur in Twelve Tales by Winona Caroline Martin. Chapter Twelve The Passing of Arthur. Then from the dawn it seemed there came but faint, as from beyond the limit of the world, like the last echo born of a great cry, sounds as if some fair city were one voice, around a king returning from his wars. Tennyson's Passing of Arthur Even before the days of the great quest, when the flower of chivalry bloomed at the height of its glory in Arthur's halls, there had already crept into the Eden among the blossoms of loyalty, high ideals and purity, the green-eyed serpent jealousy, and the traitor, so long unsuspected, was none other than the king's own nephew, Mordred. This Judas had watched Arthur's rise to power and Lancelot's ever-widening reputation for prowess with a heart growing more and more envious as the years went by, and always he had been waiting for an opportunity to carry out his wicked designs. To be sure, while the round table flourished and when the king was constantly surrounded by his 148 faithful knights, there seemed little chance of his being able to do great harm but now at last he believed that his hour had come. One by one the broken remnant of the Grail Seekers had struggled back to Camelot. Yet when all had arrived who might ever be expected, there was but a tenth of the former number, and even these for the most part had passed through such terrible experiences that they were no longer the men they had been in the brave days of old, so that Arthur was forced to exclaim, O oh, my knights, was I too dark a prophet when I foretold that most of you would follow, not the holy light of the grail, but wandering fires that would lead you at last into the quagmire of doubt and empty dreams? Having thus spoken, the king, in a vain attempt to persuade himself that all might yet be well with the realm, if not with his own heart, raised to knighthood men to fill the vacant places, and these new knights, with the remnant of the old order, rode forth to hawk and to hunt, to joust and to tawny, and to assail the heathen who now, more than ever, broke over the borders. Yet all was not as it had been, and Arthur knew it, and Bors and Lancelot and the fair Guinevere knew it, and worst of all, Mordred knew it, and said to himself, Now is my time to strike. And strike he did in the spot where he knew the king to be most vulnerable, for he accused Lancelot, he whom Arthur loved and trusted above all other men, of treason, and so subtly did he mingle a grain of truth with the mass of his infamous lies, that the king at last believed the slander, and with bitter words of reproach ordered his greatest knight from his realm. But even before Lancelot could manage to make his escape to his own city of Benwick across the sea, a skirmish took place between the knights who remained on Arthur's side and those who took the part of Lancelot in that terrible civil strife. And in that encounter, where a man scarcely knew which was friend and which was foe, it chanced that the noble Gareth was slain, as was also his older brother, Gaheris. Thereupon, Gawain, the one remaining son of good Queen Bellicent, maddened by the thought of the death of both his brothers, swore vengeance upon Lancelot, whom he held responsible, and joined with Mordred, the depth of whose plot he did not suspect for a moment, in fanning the flame of the king's anger. So that at last the two together persuaded Arthur that Lancelot had withdrawn to Benwick to raise a force, that he might return and march against Camelot. Then the king, having marshalled his own troops, turned to his nephew, saying, Mordred, 
I am about to lay siege to this traitor, Lancelot, before he has time to land in Britain. I leave you, therefore, because you are nearest to me in blood, to rule in my stead during my absence, and I also leave my queen in your charge. Then Mordred bowed low to conceal his crafty smile, for he saw that his plot was now working out to absolute perfection. Within a few weeks, therefore, Arthur, accompanied by Gawain, who still swore vengeance upon Lancelot, stood with a great army outside the gates of Benwick and challenged the inhabitants to combat. For a while, much to the king's surprise, there was no response, for Lancelot, wronged as he had been, still could not bear the thought of raising his hand against his liege lord and former friend, so that he was deaf to the entreaties of his knights who feared that his silence might be misinterpreted for cowardice. The first to plead with him was our old acquaintance, Sir Bagdemagus, who was now healed of the wound he had received from the White Knight when he had rashly borne the mystic shield intended only for Galahad. Said he, Lancelot, your courtesy will be our ruin, for Arthur's army will override the whole land and lay it waste, while we hide here in our holes like frightened rabbits. Then came the seven brothers of North Wales, men strong and brave as might be found in any land, saying, For the sake of your honour and ours, Sir Lancelot, give us leave to meet the enemy in the open field, for we have never been wont to cower behind castle walls. But Lancelot only shook his head sadly, saying, The enemy, alas, I cannot fight against my king. Wait, I pray you, until I have sent a messenger to Arthur, asking for a treaty of peace. So the mighty Lancelot, he who had never quailed before sword or lance or battering ram, sent forth a damsel accompanied by a dwarf to beg the king to return in peace to Britain, and doubtless Arthur, whose heart was no more in the war than Lancelot's, would have yielded to the entreaty had it not been for Gawain, who still goaded him on, so that the reply was the leading of the royal host to the very walls of the city, and the beginning of the siege. Then at last Lancelot gave the word, and his army marched out in battle array from behind the walls of Benwick, that they might meet the enemy in the open field. All day long the terrible struggle raged, but Lancelot had given strict orders that harm should be done neither to the king nor to Gawain, and the soldiers obeyed this command until Arthur, no longer realising fully what he did, charged against the good Sir Bors, who, as Lancelot's cousin, was fighting on his relative's side. Bors met the charge with his spear, but in so doing threw the king from his horse. Lancelot, however, who had himself taken little part in the combat, saw the fall of his lifelong friend and dashed to where Arthur lay. Leaping from his own charger, he raised the king from the ground, saying sadly, Sire, take my horse. You and your soldiers fight against me without mercy, but I cannot fight against my sovereign nor see him overthrown. Then Arthur, who could not look into his old friend's eyes, took the horse and rode from the field, calling his men after him, and Lancelot with his army retreated into the city. Now, in all probability, this would have ended the struggle, for the king's own noble nature was conquered by the nobility of Lancelot. But Gawain would not have it so, and because Arthur flatly refused to send his army into the field again, made the following proposition. Sire, said he, I will meet the traitor in single combat. Then we will fight until one shall kill the other, and that will end the war. So a message to that effect was sent to Lancelot, and it was finally agreed that the two should meet the following morning just outside the gate of the city. Now, Gawain had arranged that the contest should take place in the morning for the simple reason that, long before, a magician had bestowed upon him the gift of growing stronger every minute of the day from nine o'clock till noon, at which hour he possessed three times his natural strength, but immediately after which 
time, he returned to his normal condition. Lancelot, having never happened to joust with Gawain, knew nothing about this peculiarity, but he had not been fighting long on this day before he realised that he had an opponent of unusual prowess. In fact, it seemed that he could not strike Gawain at all, but was forced to use all his strength in simple defence. So, for a long time, neither was greatly harmed, but when high noon was passed, Lancelot suddenly felt a change come over his antagonist. Then he aimed a mighty blow so that Gawain fell badly wounded, and Lancelot stood still beside him, resting on his sword. "'Why do you stop fighting?' cried Gawain, maddened by the agony of his wound. "'We have sworn to fight it out to the end. Therefore kill me now and finish.' "'You know,' replied Lancelot gravely and sadly, "'that a knight may not slay one who is helpless, and least of all one who has been his friend.' "'Kill me and make an end,' persisted Gawain, "'for I am no friend of yours, and I swear by the death of my two brothers "'that if you let me live I will fight you again as soon as I am able, "'unless you have grown too great a coward to risk the encounter.' To this taunt, coming as it did from the lips of a man in terrible pain, Lancelot made no answer, but gave the order that Gawain be carried back to his tent while he himself returned to his own fortress. Some weeks now passed by while Gawain lay ill of his wound, and during that time Arthur would doubtless have returned to Britain, had he not feared the roughness of the journey for the sick man. No sooner, however, was Gawain on his feet once more, than he challenged Lancelot for the second time. So they fought, and the combat ended just as it had the first time, Lancelot wounding Gawain in the very place where he had wounded him before, and Gawain vowing to continue the contest as soon as he was able, which he doubtless would have done had it not been for an occurrence which suddenly changed the plans of the king's army. One terrible day, when Arthur, sick at heart and longing for a glimpse of Britain and his fair queen, was sitting in the door of his tent, the following message was delivered into his hands. Your nephew, Mordred, has spread the report throughout the kingdom that you have been slain in battle. He has also caused himself to be crowned king in your stead, and is at this moment besieging the queen in the Tower of London, whither she has fled for refuge, having refused to become his wife. Like a flash, as if the entire story had been written there on the fateful sheet that lay before him, Arthur understood at last the whole treacherous design of his nephew, and he realised in bitterness of spirit that his real enemy was Mordred, and not Lancelot. That very night, therefore, he gave the order for the army to begin its march towards the coast, so that when morning dawned, Lancelot looked out to behold the plain before the city walls evacuated, but he had no idea why the king had so suddenly raised the siege. And now it was Gawain's turn to be filled with shame and grief, for he realised that he had been but playing into the hands of the traitor. Sire, said he to the harassed king, I have helped to bring all this trouble upon you by my obstinacy concerning Lancelot, but I know now that his heart is still loyal to you, as his whole behaviour has shown. Send for him, therefore, I pray you. Lay the full blame of this strife upon me, and ask his help in winning back Britain from Mordred. But Arthur only shook his head, and answered sadly, No, Gawain, we have gone too far, and I have wronged him too deeply. I cannot ask his help now. Henceforth I must fight my battles alone. So the royal fleet of ships and galleys set sail for Dover, whither Mordred led his host to prevent, if possible, the king's landing. This he was not able to do, but a terrible battle took place in which many on both sides were killed or wounded. Mordred, however, was driven back and obliged to retreat. But when all was over, it was found that Gawain had been wounded for the third time in the same place where Lancelot had wounded him, and now it was very evident that he had not long to live. When he realised that, 
He secretly called a messenger to his side, and gave him orders to proceed at once to Benwick, where he was to tell Lancelot that the whole blame for the king's conduct lay with him, Gawain. And he was also to implore the great knight, in the name of the old friendships of the round table, to forgive the wrong that had been done him, and to hasten with all speed to the aid of his sovereign. Of this message Arthur, of course, knew nothing, but Lancelot, you may rest assured, great, true-hearted, noble knight that he really was, never hesitated for a moment after it reached him, but set sail at once for Britain, where such was the fatality that now seemed to hang over all that concerned the once-flourishing round table, he arrived one day too late. So Gawain, having with his last breath done his best to set things right, died and then began the slow but sure retreat of Mordred before the royal army across the island of Britain. Day by day the king pushed him farther and farther to the westward, until at last both pursuer and pursued found themselves in Cornwall, where retreat was no longer possible. There each made ready for that dread battle in the west. That night, however, the king had a strange dream. It seemed to him that there came, blown along lightly by a wandering wind, the ghost of Gawain, and as the phantom passed, it cried, Hail, noble king! Tomorrow, if you fight, you will pass away, and woe will come to Britain. Therefore, delay the battle for a season, for Lancelot and his knights are on their way to help you. The king awoke with a start, exclaiming, Who spoke? Was it a dream? It was like the voice of Gawain. Can it be that he haunts these wastes and wilds, knowing that the end of the round table is at hand? Sir Bedivere, who was the first man whom Arthur had knighted, and who was still his faithful follower in this hour of darkness, endeavoured to reassure his sovereign. Nevertheless, when morning came, the king sent messages to Mordred, asking for a meeting, that they might agree upon a truce. Finally, it was arranged that Arthur and Mordred, each accompanied by fourteen knights, should meet halfway between the lines of the two armies. Arthur, however, so shattered was his former faith in human nature, said to those of his men who were to remain behind, Watch, I pray you, for I suspect treachery, and if you see a sword drawn on either side, do not wait for any other signal, but begin the battle at once. Now, as the ill fortune of that fatal day would have it, while the king and his nephew were deep in conference, a small adder crept from under a bush and stung the foot of one of the knights. In an instant, forgetting the strict instructions as to use the weapons, the man drew his sword to kill the snake, and the naked steel glittered for a moment in the morning sunlight. The royal army, however, too far off to see the adder, caught only the flash of that drawn sword, and mistook it for a signal for battle. Then, though neither Arthur nor Mordred realised in any way what had happened, while each suspected the other of treachery, the trumpets blew and the knights charged forward so that the two great waves of men and horses broke upon each other with a mighty crash and clang of arms, and thus was joined that last weird battle of the west. All day long it raged while a death-white mist crept up from the sea, chilling the blood and blinding the eyes so that friend slew friend, not knowing whom he slew. And all fought as men possessed, some haunted by visions of their youth and others by the faces of old ghosts upon the battlefield. The air was filled with the crash of splintering weapons, and the shattering of helmet and armour mingled with the shouts of those who prevailed, and the shrieks of the wounded and the moans of the dying. All day long the forces swayed to and fro, until toward evening an unearthly hush fell upon the scene. Then a bitter wind from the north blew aside the mist, revealing to the few survivors the field of carnage over which the relentless tide was already creeping. 
The king, however, still stood erect, and by his side were Bedivere and another faithful follower, Sir Lucan. As the three gazed upon the ghastly spectacle before them, they suddenly beheld, rising victorious upon a heap of slain, the form of Mordred, the only survivor of his army. But at that sight, blind fury seized the king, and brandishing Excalibur, he rushed forward like a lion and fell upon the traitor, whom with one terrible blow he fell to the earth. In his eagerness, however, he had thought only of attack and nothing of defence. Thus it happened that Mordred, as he fell, struck the king, in inflicting a deadly wound so that Arthur dropped, fainting over his enemy's expiring body. In a moment, Bedivere and Lucan were at his side. Together they tried to lift him, but Lucan, faithful though he was, could serve his sovereign no more, for he too had been wounded, and now, overcome by his last effort, dropped dead beside the body of Mordred the traitor. And now, Bedivere alone, of all the knights of the round table, was left to care for the stricken king. Tenderly, he bore him to a ruined chapel in a field nearby, and there, at the foot of a broken cross, he ministered to him. Presently, Arthur stirred slightly, then he opened his eyes, and said brokenly, They sleep, the men I loved. And a little later, he whispered weakly, I perish by the people whom I made. Over all is the trail of the serpent. Into every holy fellowship the Judas creeps. After a while, however, he was able to rouse himself and to speak in a firmer voice. Bedivere, my first and my last night, he said, there yet remains one thing that you may do for me before I pass to the Vale of Avalon for the healing of my wound. Take Excalibur, throw it into the middle of the mere, then return quickly and tell me what you have seen. Strange words these about his passing, yet they echoed an old prophecy of Merlin's, who, wise man though he was, had long since brought about his own destruction by his folly. Bedivere, however, took the wonderful weapon and climbed by a rugged, zigzagged path. There he drew forth the sword and was about to fling it into the water, but as he brandished it aloft, the moon crept from behind a cloud, and its light sparkled for a moment in the keen, frosty air upon the bejeweled hilt, revealing the two inscriptions which Bedivere was not able to read. Take me, and cast me away. Then his purpose wavered, for he said to himself, After all, the king's mind wanders, and if I throw this sword away, what relic or record of my lord will be left for future generations? So he took Excalibur, and hid it among the many knotted flags that whistled dry and stiff by the water's edge. Then he strode back to the helpless king. Have you performed my mission? inquired Arthur. What have you seen and heard? Sire, I heard the waters lapping on the rocks and washing among the reeds, was the reply. Oh, Bedivere, cried the king, you have betrayed the honour of your knighthood by acting out this lie. Return and throw the brand into the mere, then come back quickly and tell me what you have seen. So Bedivere departed a second time, but again the glitter of the jewel stayed his hand, and he returned without having accomplished his errand. Then Arthur, breathing more heavily than before, repeated his question. What have you seen and heard? And Bedivere answered once again, I heard the water lapping on the cragsire, and the long ripple washing in the reeds. At this the king's anger flamed. Traitor! Unkind! Untrue! he cried in scorn. You are the last of my knights left to me, and you will not do my bidding. So does authority forget a dying king. Then Bedivere, who after all loved his sovereign with all his heart, was filled with remorse and shame. 
and leapt along the path till he stood once more at the water's edge. There he drew Excalibur from the bushes, and closing his eyes so that he might not again be tempted, hurled the beautiful sword with all his might toward the middle of the mere. Round and round it whirled, making lightnings in the splendour of the moon. But lo, before it reached the crest of the waves, a mighty arm clothed in white summit rose from the bosom of the lake and caught it by the hilt, brandishing it three times, after which it drew the mystic weapon beneath the mere, whence it had come. Presently Bedivere, well nigh overcome with awe and wonder, made his way back to the king's side, and Arthur, when he saw his knight's eyes, said as one whose mind was set at rest, now I know, Bedivere, that you have obeyed my command. After a while, when he had lain for some time in silence, he looked up into his knight's face, saying softly, The end draws near. Carry me, I pray you, to the water's edge. Bedivere, with tears in his eyes, obeyed, and as they reached the mere, shining in the pure cold light of the wintry moon, he beheld a dusky barge moving toward them. Its decks were thronged with black-robed figures whose faces were hidden in their hoods, but among the rest stood three queens in crowns of gold, and from them came a wailing sound of lamentation, a cry that shivered to the tingling stars. Lay me in the barge, said the king faintly, as the little craft came to shore. Presently the barge began to put off from the shore, and Bedivere was left standing alone, crying brokenly. Ah, oh, whither shall I go? For the days of knightly glory are dead, and the round table is no more. Softly, faintly, across the gleaming waters came an answer in the king's own dear, familiar voice. Bedivere, do not grieve, but go your way and live out the rest of your life as duty calls you. My life's work is done, and I pass to the island valley of Avalon, where come neither hail nor snow, nor wind nor the sun's heat, but where all things rest and thrive amid wooded meadows ringed round with summer seas. Thither I go for the healing of my wound, and when I am well, perchance should Britain need me, I will come again. Until then, for the old order changes yielding place to new, farewell. Then the barge, like a full-breasted swan, moved farther and farther into the distance, until Bedivere's straining eyes could see but its hull like one black dot against the dawn. Presently the wailing died away along the mere, while the lonely knight's cry of despair seemed answered in the words of Merlin's weird rhyme. From the great deep to the great deep he goes. And then with the dawn there seemed to come, faintly as from beyond the limits of the world, a sound like the last echo of a great burst of triumph, as if the people of some fair city were welcoming their king, returning victorious from his wars. Such was the passing of Arthur, but what of the two who had been nearest and dearest to him in life? Guinevere, when she heard the news of that terrible battle, left the Tower of London and sought retreat among the sisters in the Abbey of Almsbury, and after a while she took the veil herself. There she lived a gentle, patient, helpful life, caring for the sick and ministering to the poor, until at the death of the abbess she was selected to fill the vacant place. So for the last three years of her life, Guinevere, the former Queen of Britain, was abbess of Almsbury. And Lancelot, who with all his anxious haste to reach his sovereign, had nevertheless arrived too late, 
he likewise, forsaking the helmet for the cowl, passed from the noiseful life of arms and acts, of prowess done in tournament and tilt into the silent life of prayer, and with him into his retreat went Bedivere and Bors. Thus was fulfilled the prophecy that the mighty Lancelot of the lake, against whose soul the powers of darkness had waged relentless warfare, should die a holy man. End of Tale 12 End of the Story of King Arthur in Twelve Tales by Winona Caroline Martin